Romans 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, and then in the uh, Confession of Faith, chapter number 11. So chapter 11 of the Confession, Romans chapter 4, uh, in your Bibles this morning. We're going to begin dealing with the subject of justification, and our subject this morning is the nature of justification, and also looking at paragraph 1. But let's begin there in Romans chapter 4, beginning there in verse number 1. The Apostle Paul uh, writing these words. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also." And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had been yet uncircumcised. The doctrine of justification is absolutely essential for understanding not only the gospel, but understanding salvation. Uh, Any confusion... Uh, any misunderstanding or misinterpretation of what the word justification means, uh, in effect, will have an impact on how the gospel is understood, and I would submit even how it is presented or how it is preached. So one important issue as we begin that we have to address up front is that in this particular chapter, in Romans chapter number 4, Paul deals with justification the way he typically uses it in his epistles. He has a pattern of when he uses the word or the doctrine of justification, he has a pattern in the way in which he uses justification. We do know that probably the classic other side of this justification coin is the way in which James uses it. In the book of James, James uses the word justify or justification in a slightly different sense to what Paul does. James uses the word justify in the sense of demonstrating or showing someone that they're righteous. Okay, so it's, it's critical that we understand that James uses the word justify in the sense of demonstrating or showing someone to be righteous. For example, in the book of James, James speaks of the fulfillment of Abraham's initial justification when he offered up Isaac. That's elaborated on in that chapter, but I want us to see this morning that Paul is primarily using this in a legal or judicial sense. So Paul's emphasis is on standing. James' emphasis is on showing. Okay, It's the easiest way to put it. Showing the evidence 
of justification. Romans is showing us the judicial or the legal sense. Now, the way Paul uses it, and this is also critical, the way Paul uses it is the primary sense in which the Bible uses the word. So when we see justification in the Old Testament, we see justification in the New Testament, the primary use of the word to justify or justification is the legal sense or standing. Now, that's a, the basis of or the basic of that doctrine. Now, in order for us to connect what we've learned in the chapter preceding this, chapter 10, when we dealt with effectual calling, how does the doctrine of justification relate to effectual calling? First of all, effectual calling is the method the Lord uses to communicate with fallen man. So how does God communicate with fallen sinners? He uses effectual calling. Secondly, an effectually called individual is a justified individual. Okay? Effectual calling is the method the Lord uses to communicate, to draw the sinner. Secondly, an effectual called individual is a justified individual. There's a great emphasis on the little word is. Okay? In the legal sense, an effectually called individual that has been called effectually, which we've learned, is justified. Now, from a Reformed Baptist perspective, okay, so where we're standing, righteousness is not on the basis of what we become, but on the basis of what has been given. Our righteousness is not our own. Okay? So it's not on the basis of what we've become, it's on the basis of what's been given. Our righteousness is not our own. That is a crucial uh, point of understanding. So in Romans 4, verses 5 through 8, we notice here that the Bible tells us, and it makes a very strong statement about what justification actually does. Look at Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Notice in verse 5, it says, Him that justifieth the ungodly. So justification is the change in legal standing before God of an ungodly person. That is, in a sense, what justification is. It is to change the legal standing. So justification, in the way that Paul uses it in Romans 4, and again, primarily throughout Scripture, including the Old Testament, is judicial. That helps us to not confuse the doctrine of justification with the doctrine of sanctification, which happens quite often. Many times people intertwine sanctification and justification. They call aspects of sanctification justification, and they call aspects of justification sanctification. That's why it's important for us to establish this very firm foundation that Paul is speaking in the judicial terms with regard to this justification. We also know that part of the Reformed Baptist doctrine is thirdly that justification is not by any human act but by Christ's act. Okay, so this is not something that we do by any human act whatsoever. This is done by Christ. 
Now, those who would argue contrary to Reformed doctrine or Reformed Baptist doctrine or whichever way you want to uh, illustrate that would argue that the act or the work of belief is the cause of justification. That's the argument. They would say the act of belief is the cause of my justification. The Reformed Baptist argues that faith is the instrument, but not the act. So it's, so why is it by faith then? What is faith? Faith is trusting in the act of another. So this is key as we begin to understand this, that we have a difference of opinion as far as who, what the act is and who is the actor. Is Christ the actor or is the ungodly sinner the actor? Remember, effectual called, that individual is justified. Who is the author of effectual calling? God is the author of effectual calling. That makes God the author of not only the call, but he's also the author of the standing. The legal standing now becomes justification. So what does this paragraph, paragraph 1, show us? Let's read this together. It says, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Notice the, the confession does not separate effectual calling and justification. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. So notice no disconnect between effectual calling and justification. It is not the act of infusing righteousness. We're going to deal with that concept. Sometimes we misspeak and we use the terminology that says that it has been an infused righteousness. And we're going, to, we're going to discredit that. We're going to show you why it's not infused righteousness. But by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. You go back to Romans 4 and you get, again, notice that it is... Uh, Paul makes mention of this. He says, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That is, in fact, the blessed man. That man who stands justified is a man who has had his sins pardoned and covered. And again, the second half or the middle portion says it's not for anything wrought in them or any act in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. And contrary to this infusion of righteousness, it says not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them. Paul is going to drive home a point here that this justification is based upon the act of Christ and solely upon the act of Christ. So this paragraph one of justification is pretty much putting to rest any idea that somehow, some way, uh, some act that I have done, some act of obedience of mine, whether it's active or passive, has declared me to be justified. 
No, what the paragraph is telling us is that the entirety of it is a gift of God from the effectual call all the way through the standing of justification. Now, there's a couple different points we need to make regarding this justification. First of all, the dominant Old Testament and New Testament meaning of justify is to declare someone righteous in a legal sense. Again, we've already established this fact this morning, that the dominant Old Testament and New Testament meaning of justify is to declare someone righteous in a legal sense. We can go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse number 1. And we can look at the use of the word justify here. And again, this is the primary means in which this uses. Now, Deuteronomy 25 is in the midst of laws concerning human relations. In other words, laws between people. What do we do when there's a crime or something committed against one another? Deuteronomy 25 verse 1 says, If there be a controversy between men and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. That phrase, they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, is a judicial sense. It is in the legal standing. The one will be declared righteous, the other will be condemned. That's the legal use of that particular phrase or word. Over in Proverbs 17, this is more given to us as an example of something that is right and something that is wrong with regard to justification. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Now you, know, you have to read that verse carefully. He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. We're going to return to that, that thought in just a moment. And then Romans 8.33 gives us another picture of this evidence of the judicial sense in which is intended. Romans 8.33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So it is not possible to ascribe in those three verses any other meaning to the word justify other than in a sense of legal standing. In Deuteronomy 25, that shows very clearly that there is a judge who is issuing a judicial declaration. He's determining the innocence or the guilt of someone. In Proverbs 17:15, notice the abomination that is described the abomination that's described is to declare a wicked person just. Okay, that's why I said read it carefully. An abomination is to declare a wicked person just. That would be the idea of ignoring someone's sin. So if I declared a sinner just, I'm declaring a wicked person just. Does that make sense, everyone? It, there's a, it's, a very, it's a very small nuance because if you just blow through it, you read it and you think, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Didn't that, isn't that what God did? No, God did not declare a wicked person just. Well, he's done something else. 
However, to make a wicked person just would be a noble act, not an abomination. So in other words, to turn a wicked person into a just person would be something that's not an abomination, but rather something that we would declare as being noble. It's all about the declaration and making. Okay, so it's critical to understand that when someone is declared or if someone is justified, they are declared righteous irrespective of whether they are morally righteous or not. Okay, this standing is not based upon moral righteousness. The standing is based upon legal righteousness. Now therein, this is where you come to this fork in the road where we get confused between justification and sanctification. We, set, we tend to make the fork the same. There is this idea that's saying in order for this morally righteous person to be declared justified, they have to act morally righteous. That's not what Paul is talking about. Remember, Paul has been trying to, to drive home the reality that your standing before God is not based upon your moral righteousness. It's based upon your judicial stance before God. If we, were, if we always had to be morally righteous in order to be justified, we are failing daily because we fail to be morally righteous. But our standing before God is not based upon our moral righteousness. Now again, what about James' use of the word? James was illustrating with Abraham how Abraham was showing his legal standing by offering up Isaac. Offering up Isaac didn't justify Abraham. It was the evidence that he was, in fact, legally justified before God. There are some that teach that Abraham was justified the moment he raised up and offered Isaac. He was already judicially standing before God in the legal sense. So a question then can be asked, how can God declare someone to be righteous when they're not? That leads us to the second point, which is simply this. Justification has two parts to it. And it can be defined in both of these ways. Number one, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God. Just like a judge declares the innocence or the guilt of an individual standing in his courtroom, justification is an instantaneous legal act. Now notice again what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean that you are going to be morally upright and perfect from the moment of that declaration. That's where sanctification comes in and we become conformed into the image of Christ over time. Now we also know that sanctification in its initial response has the idea of being set apart. There's a legal sense to sanctification, but we've got to keep these two areas separate. Sanctification is where the evidence of that justification begins to be evidenced. And as we continue to grow in the things of God, we become to look more and more like Christ. So what does justification as an instantaneous legal act look like? God himself thinks of our sins or considers our sins forgiven. Totally forgiven. And Christ's righteousness belongs to us. 
It's not infused in us. It belongs to us. In other words, we have the legal right to claim our standing before God on His righteousness. Now, the infusion comes into it because there are other religions that say, I I have been infused with the righteousness of Christ. If I've been infused in the sense of what the word infused means, then that means the result should be I live in moral sinless perfection. That's what it should mean. We don't have his moral perfection and perfect active and passive obedience infused into us. We have the rights to claim his righteousness as ours. that, That separates lots of different thoughts. So justification is that instantaneous legal act. The second part of that is he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Not by looking at our infused righteousness, but by looking at the righteousness of his son. That's how we are viewed by God himself. So justification, the second part. Sinners receive the righteousness of Christ to their account. Then God can justly declare them to be righteous. Remember that proverb was not saying that a person who is wicked is declared just it is making the wicked person now a person who has a just standing my standing in christ my standing in christ is what allows me acceptability with god not my infused righteousness thirdly the instrument of justification is emphasized primarily in romans 3 now we were looking at romans 4 this morning we're going to deal more with this next week But Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, we see the instrument of this justification. Okay, we're kind of dealing more this morning with the nature of what it means, uh, what it declares. But Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, gives us the instrument. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. The instrument is his righteousness. His righteousness. Not not even my legal standing. It is his righteousness. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Faith itself is not the righteousness some have implied that that's what Romans 4, 3 means. And we read that. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Some have misapplied that by saying, no, faith is the actual instrument of justification. No, his righteousness is the actual instrument. The instrument that makes it happen, the instrument that makes justification, it's his righteousness. It wasn't Abraham's faith that made the righteousness. His standing did not change his legal standing. Christ's righteousness is not infused, but rather it's imputed. 
imputed through faith to a sinner, Romans 4, 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. It doesn't say infused, it says imputed. To count the account of. So there is a, there is a nuance there. So what does Paul specifically say about his own righteousness, his own standing? Paul specifically says that he received righteousness from God. It didn't come from himself. It didn't come from his acts. And it was not a man-made righteousness. You go all the way back to Romans 1, verse 17. And Paul, as he announces in verses 16 and 17 in the very opening letters, opening words of this epistle, he announces in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. He says it's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of God. He identifies he received any acts and any righteous acts in which he did, he received those from God. Back to Romans 3, verses 24 and 26, which we just read. Again, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And then Paul, when he wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3.9, if you want to turn there, Philippians 3.9, and here's the clearest, the clearest declaration. Now this is in the midst of Paul's uh, famous words of winning Christ. Okay, it's, it is an often quoted verse. It's verse, uh, verse 10 especially, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. But notice what he says in the previous verse. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness. And here's what, he ta- here's what he says our own righteousness is, which is of the law. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Then Paul announces that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He goes on to say, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. In the previous verses, he counted all things of himself as done. He says, whatever I've done, whatever I've offered, whatever I've said, it's worthless. It belongs on the trash heap. And folks, that's, that is where we, if we are left standing to ourselves, all that we do belongs on the trash heap. No matter how good we think we are. If we think we can take our righteous trash heap and make that acceptable to God by polishing it, by shining it, by by 
sewing up the tares, that somehow God will say, now you are righteous and I declare you righteous because your trash heap is now presentable. That's how foolish it is to think we can change our legal standing before God. Paul says everything of my righteousness is wrapped up in the law. And if it's wrapped up in the law, I know the conclusion of that quandary. If it's wrapped up in the law, my righteousness fails because I can't keep the law. And if I can't keep the law, I have nothing to present before God as far as my acceptance. So the instrument is his righteousness. Fourth, Christ's righteousness, don't miss this, and this, the confession talks about this. When we see the phrase or the words, Christ's righteousness, don't forget his obedience. Somehow, over the years, and I'm not sure it's been intentional, but we have forgotten that Christ's righteousness required his obedience actively and passively. In other words, he couldn't just kind of, he didn't just take on a robe of human flesh and just exist. He actually actively obeyed and passively obeyed. That is, that is what's imputed into the sinner's account is Christ's active and passive obedience, which is righteousness. People have often said, well, what does Christ's righteousness really look like? Is it, is it an act? Is it something that he said? It's his obedience. He came to perfectly fulfill the law, and he did fulfill the law. That's why his act of obedience and passive obedience is the only thing that can change our legal standing. We have to claim his righteousness because we have nothing else to claim but a trash heap. Now, I know, it's like we've said often, it seems so insulting to call all of our, all of our good works as a trash heap. I didn't call it that. Paul calls it that. Paul said, uh, everything that I do, my own righteousness is wrapped up in that law. And I, I wrote a whole chapter about my own righteousness in Romans 7. But everything I was supposed to do, I didn't. Things I didn't want to do, I did it. He, he's all but saying, listen, I've come to the full conclusion that everything I have to offer God as far as my legal standing and justification is trash. It's trash, and that's probably a kind word. You know, everything comes, everything comes through the perspective of our lens. When I say word trash to somebody, they have their idea of what trash is. But remember, it's, it's, there's nothing in it of our own. So it's both his active and his perfect obedience to all of God's commandments. Specifically, while he lived on earth. Don't forget about Christ in the flesh. And don't forget about his incarnation. We've already read Romans 3, but if you go over to Romans 5, verse 19, you notice that there's a, there's a statement made just briefly about this. And this is, this is in the section of chapter 5 where Paul writes about being justified by the blood of Christ. In Romans 5, 19, he writes these words for his... By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The obedience of one we know is not Adam, and we know it's not you. And we know it's not me. We know it's not the Pope. 
We know there is no one else ever who has lived or will live while they were in their humanity perfectly obeyed the law except for Christ. It so simplifies and really ought to remove, here's another theological word for you, a lot of the junk that's infiltrated our minds giving us the false impression that our morally righteous acts are adding to our justification because they're not. Even if you got up today praising Jesus with the first thing when your eyes opened, you did not add to your legal standing. Now, your sanctification may be at work, but not your legal standing. You are not getting more and more innocent with God. Nor, when you sin, are you getting more guilty with God because through His righteousness, you've already been declared as if you had perfectly kept the law actively and passively yourself. So not only did he keep the law, we can't miss this. That's the active. But he also, he passively obeyed, how? By his perfect, obedient death on the cross. You said that doesn't seem passive. It's passive in the sense that he willingly, voluntarily went to that cross, fully submitted to the Father's will. Now, just because it was passive, don't, don't let that word trick you. Don't let that word think, oh, that just sounds like he wasn't doing anything. <laughs> Everything that was being done was being done according to the purposes and the sovereign grace of God. But that passive obedience, his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. So the Bible ascribes very directly our justification back in Romans 5.9. That's what, how it connects back to the blood of Christ. Notice what Paul says. Much more than being now justified by His blood. That blood was shed in His human flesh in order to pay the sin and the price and the debt for sinners. He had to die and shed His blood in human frailty and in His human flesh. Justified by His blood, what is the result? We shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Of course, now there's a reference to not only the active and passive obedience, there's a reference there to not only His death, but His resurrection. And then I love this. I love when the Bible uses phrases like, and not only so. This just kind of adds a little bit more to the joy we've already read about. Not only this, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. That is the most joyous news you're going to hear for the rest of your life. Is that because of Christ's righteousness as the instrument, the nature of justification is such that now you stand legally acceptable before God. And it's not because of a single work that you did, and it's not because of your moral living. Why do you think Paul made all those references about grace not being a license to sin? Because he was saying, by no means should you come to the conclusion 
that because your legal standing is already established, that you don't have to live like it. Your grace that God has shown you should not be a license to sin. It should actually be a call to holiness. But don't get the idea that your acts are adding to your legal standing. All the way back to Abraham, the compared between how Paul wrote and James wrote. Paul was writing the justification from the standpoint of showing the evidence after that legal standing's been declared. Paul had a great, there was a great controversy in his day. This, we're reading this and we've got controversial thoughts running through our minds. This was the controversy of the day between am I justified by my keeping the law or am I justified by his keeping the law? This was a real argument that the churches were having and they were having even amongst themselves. And we might say today, well, I'm glad we don't have those type of arguments. We still have those type of arguments. We still have people that have not moved past the reality that their righteousness is as filthy rags doesn't mean you're not supposed to do righteous things, but you're not supposed to consider them to be the thing that legally declares you righteous. Matter of fact, if you know you've been declared righteous, you should want to do righteous acts. You should be looking for opportunities to do something good. Just don't take credit for them and say, boy, look what I'm doing. I am such a good follower of Christ. No, you're doing it with humble thanksgiving that Jesus Christ would even give any sort of opportunity like this to you. So finally, faith is a gift from God. It can never be seen as a work of self-righteousness. We see that referenced in the Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. We see it referenced in Philippians 1.29. We've kind of illustrated that this morning. You can look at those um, on your own time. But I, I do want you to look at Acts 16.14 as we, we need to finish up here. But Acts 16.14 gives us this picture. And God, God used this text. We'll be, I'm going to give you another transparent view into the confusing mind which is mine. God used Acts 16 really to show me one of the first times of the doctrines of grace at work. It was one of the first times I actually was really confronted with this direct statement that I did not have a rebuttal for. I had been able to push back a lot of things that I had seen before. But this one, and again, we don't have time to read it all, but this is in the account of a woman by the name of Lydia. And in Acts 16, 14, and I love the phraseology that the book of Acts uses here. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. I thought and I thought and I thought and I saw that. She came from a, she came from a city, Thyatira, which worshiped God. It says she heard us, but it doesn't say that she opened her eyes or opened her heart. It said, who's the Lord, whose heart the Lord opened. And because the heart of the Lord opened her heart, she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Because the Lord opened her heart. And then it says when she was baptized. This... This is all happening. (laughs) 
This is all happening in a matter of minutes. And I'm sitting there running through my mind and I'm thinking all sorts of things and I'm seeing whose heart the Lord opened. Because up to that time in my life, that was certain I would have looked at and I would have said, well, you had to open your heart to Jesus. You've got to give him the, you've got to open the door to let him in. You've got to tell him it's okay for you to come in. And yet that's not what we see through Scripture. We don't see many people, if any. I mean, we see the jailer in total fear asking Paul, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And we see the eunuch saying, what keeps me from being baptized in the water? But you notice that God was at work in all of those situations before they ever asked those questions. But you don't just see a random person walking along the road saying, give me Jesus. You don't just see a random person saying, you know what, I think I'll open my heart to God today. No, he opens the heart in order that we might receive the things in which he says. Which leads us right back, if God opens the heart, then I'm pretty much left empty-handed. Because my righteousness didn't open my heart. My self-righteousness, my own desire didn't open my heart. God opened the heart. So here's some important conclusions we can draw. Two, two relatively simple, but I think very important. Justification is instantaneous. Now again, don't disconnect belief and justification. Justification is instantaneous when a person believes because Christ's righteousness has been given to them. People do not contribute to his righteousness. I do not contribute to Christ's righteousness or my own. Secondly, justification in the legal standing and the legal terminology is complete and perfect. Now here's where pride gets put away. Christians, one Christian is not more justified than another. So you guys are not more justified than that side nor reversed. I don't care who's sitting on either side. You guys could get up and swap. You could make trades between each other. You could say, we'll trade this person for the, you give us this, we'll take this person. That doesn't make one side more justified than the other in the legal term, the legal standing. You say, well, isn't the person who's been saved the longest more justified? No. Isn't the person that's more morally righteous more justified? No. Even the criminal who was once accused of a crime, who's declared justified by the court, you realize after they're declared innocent, they have a hard time getting over the fact that they were accused. Read the account of people who were falsely accused. It is fascinating. They don't even somehow start to believe, maybe I was guilty. You know, I, I actually probably did have some wicked thoughts towards that person. I didn't kill them, but I, I had some wicked thoughts. It takes a while for them to understand. But yet, it doesn't depend upon your degree of holiness. Your justification does not depend upon your degree of holiness. It depends on Christ's perfect obedience. Fully dependent upon Christ's obedience. So what would happen to my justification if at one time, even a single instant, that Jesus Christ had not been actively and passively, perfectly obedient. None of us 
would have a legal standing before God, we would, none would be justified. We would have nothing. Now, what, you know what man would do? Man would try to create his own religion and say, okay, since there's no legal standing in a God or any way through it, we'll just make a religion that makes whoever does the best things, whoever does the most good, whoever has the most on their checkpoints, they get in. That's what would happen. So how did it happen in our world today that even with Christ's righteousness, man's still trying to figure out a way to make sure his good works outweigh his bad works and somehow still believes that if I'm even just one better, I'm in. There are churches all over the state that believe that. I just got to be a little bit better. I've just got to have a little bit more. It depends on Christ's perfect obedience. All right, let's pray this morning. And what I want you to do, I want you to chew on this, because next week we have an extremely short paragraph. So I'm going to leave time specifically next week for a much longer question and answer, because these two things are tied together. So be ready for that next week. We're just going to touch on that second paragraph, and then we're going to move in. Then we'll talk a little bit more about how this paragraph connects with the first one. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, we have covered so much material. We've covered so much of your word today. And Lord, we know that understanding does not come from me. It doesn't come from our own intellect. It comes from the Holy Spirit teaching us and guiding us. Father, I know we have questions, we have thoughts, we have concerns, but Lord, help us and teach us to meditate on what we've heard. Help us to go and study for ourselves and to see if these things are so. My desire is never for anyone to just simply take my word for it, even take what I've spoken, what I've said, what I've pointed them to, but that they would study for themselves. Father, thank you for continuing to grow us in this environment, to continue to teach us and guide us. And Father, we thank you for this legal standing and this justification. Father, where would we be if we were left to ourselves? And I believe most everyone in this room knows exactly what that would mean for us if we did not have Christ's righteousness. Thank you, Father, for this time. I pray you'll be with us during our morning service this morning. Not only as the word is preached, but as the Lord's Supper is observed, the hymns are sung, scripture is read. The Lord, this would not just be any other ordinary day, but it would be a day that we have intentionally decided to worship you. We thank you and praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.